Before we start this episode, I just want to take a moment to tell you about another project that I do called Stand Up Tragedy, which is a live show and podcast. Our next live show is going to happen at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 7th of May. The format of the show is going to be different this time. It's going to be longer and it will start at 8.30. Since we've got more time, we're going to pack in a lot more acts and an interval. Tickets cost £10. Go to www.standuptragedy.co.uk to buy tickets. If you do book online, use the promo code TRAGIC because that will offset your booking fees. I think for some people it'll even mean a reduction, but it really depends on what your ticket would cost normally. That show is costing me money to run and so if you want to support an independent show you can donate to Stand Up Tragedy again you can do that from the site I'm also looking for people who want to expand their portfolios by coming along and taking some photographs or shooting some video for us or maybe even recording some audio and getting involved with the podcast making process I'm looking for people who want to come along and do that stuff for free but obviously we'll give you as much publicity as we can and we will also link to your stuff as much as possible I'll be there at the night I'm the compare I'm the host so if anybody is thinking oh well I love that Getting Better Acquainted podcast and you live in London and you want to be a part of this show come along and then if you meet me then you qualify to come on the show. And so you can say, hi, Dave, you don't know me. I'm this person. I'd like to be on your show now because we have now become acquainted and I'm kind of obliged to uh, to, to record a conversation with you. So I hope you see you there. Although coming along to Stand Up Tragedy doesn't mean you have to be on this show. You can just come along to enjoy a night of music, comedy, short stories, true stories, performance and more. The way I explained it was when I worked in Newham, I left my mobile phone on the desk in my office and people kicked the door down and stole it. Whereas in Enfield, I left my mobile phone on my desk with the door open and someone stole it. They wouldn't have kicked the door down. Yeah. And so it was kind of just a slightly different, a more extreme culture. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. Before this episode starts, I just want to point out that my sister Jo is my half-sister. All my sisters are technically half-sisters, which is why we have different mothers. I don't call them half-sisters, but that is what they are. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Joe. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Hello, David. <laughs> that was my teacup. That's funny. You, I called you Joe, which is a shortening, and you called me David, which is the uh, the long. The, I'm uh, being long formal. formal. You're being formal. Well, Joanna, then. <laughs> that's what my mother used to call me when she wanted to command my attention. Exactly, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about David, actually, oh, uh, I guess. Okay. I mean, I don't think either parent really said it in a kind of telling me off way, but I just, I don't know, Dave always feels a bit more me, I guess, okay. somehow. I don't know how you that You feel happened. like Dave. How about Robert? Oh, um, 
I don't really relate to the middle name at all, really. I, I, I quite like the fact that it's 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 Dr Pickering, which just looks like Doctor Pickering. Oh, that's true. Did you ever know your grand? Was it your granddad, Robert? Yeah, yeah. he was. My granddad was Robert, and he was a doctor as well. So it's kind of nice like that. Mm. So the first question that I ask people is, "How did you meet me?" <laughs> the first time I met you, you mean? Um, well, <laughs> whatever you want, however you want to. Interpret the question. Well, I can remember Tony being born. He's my brother, and so are you. I can remember <laughs> Tony being born because that was kind of the first baby up in Norfolk, and I was didn't have a baby myself at that point, and mum and dad had just moved up to Norfolk. By the time you were born, they must have been there for about seven years, I think, because they moved up when June was quite pregnant with Tony. That makes sense, yeah, because there's six years between me and Tony. So I don't remember if we actually came up to see the baby because we'd have had a three-year-old and we're in the middle of rebuilding a house and working and getting divorced and god knows what probably what i remember about you was when you were about six months old dad got a word processor his first word processor and he was the first person i knew really to have a word processor and i can remember you in the front room and him sending pictures of you being a very contented little baby in your cot <laughs> And he would write something, go down to heat your bottle up, or whatever it was, leave the word processor, printing loads of stuff. And he said it had revolutionised being able to stay at home and look after a child and write at the same time. So I, I can't actually remember the first time I met you, whether it was, you know, how old a baby you were. Yeah, well, I can't, I can't remember it, obviously. No, you obviously can't <coughs> remember it, no. But I can't remember the first time I encountered you. And I'm very sorry about that. That's all right. I don't oh, mind. Can't actually remember the first time I encountered Tony or I, Rebecca. I don't think I can. I don't. I don't think I can remember the first time I encountered you. You know, consciously encountered you either. No. I remember you've always seemed to have been there. You know, that's I think, how it goes. Yeah, I don't think were. we came up as much when you were young because when Tony was young, we used to come up before we had Sonia. You know, it was kind of weekend in the country. Well, we always came to visit you. That's yeah. Like that was a sort of staple yeah. of my childhood was coming yeah. to visit you and it being very exciting. And that would have been Preston Road, wouldn't it, by then? The yeah, flat, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that that was that was kind of that's kind of got mythic mythic qualities in my childhood memory. That place. There's mm. lots of what do you happy times. It? it was the first place I ever got drunk when I was nine, I think, at a party. And I remember Dad take, getting me up very early the next morning and and, and, and taking me for a walk on the common when I was. <laughs> I think mother. I think don't think I had another hangover till I was you know in my twenties uh, after that. But also, because Sonia was a few years older than me, that's your daughter, yeah. she was kind of an exciting, cool teenager that I always kind of aspired to, or I guess pretty back then. And I was playing cricket on the common, and there was watching, I remember watching Charlotte's Web at your place, and uh, your boyfriend at the time telling me that it was only a spider, and that making me cry a lot. And you were being very annoyed. Yeah, I was very angry. Said, but, you know, things do die. No, looking back, you see, it seems very reasonable. It seems very reasonable. You were trying to be nice. Yeah, it sounds like you were. Amy and Miriam. Yeah. At the time, must have lived three doors up. Ah. Was that before Jan moved down the road? I I don't remember where they were. Jan lived three houses up in a great big five-bedroomed house. Yeah. Mine was just the flat that was the bottom of what had been a five-bedroomed house, but it had been converted. Yeah. So they lived up the road. And I think that must have been when Dad got friendly with Jan. Yeah, I guess so. Because by the time we moved to this house, you must have been about nine. Because I remember when we moved, that was 1992. How old would you have been? Um, I would have been about 11, around 11. 11. Because I remember we sent you up to the shop to get tea, and then we sent you up to get milk, and then we sent you up to get sugar. (laughs) Because we kind of couldn't find all the things in the moving, and more and more people turned up to help. 
and Celia at the shop said you were her best friend by the end of the day. We sent you up to the shop so many times, so you must have been quite old. So pre-11, you'd have been up the road Yeah. in the flat. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Well, what I remember really about coming to London was that there was always, I mean, I guess it was probably the nature of when we came, but there was always cool parties going on with adults being I think you used to come exciting. at New Year quite often. Yeah, exactly. New Year and Christmas sort of mm-hmm. area. Of I remember lots of New Year's parties with you then. And then there was the summer, I think, where we would go to the common. What I always remember about, or what I even know about Leightonstone now, is that there's a community feeling. Like like you're saying, you knew people on the street and there was always people in the house. You've always had a kind of very open doors mm-hmm. kind of house and that's not quite what I, what I lived in my general experience. So it was... Although my mum was always happy for people to come round, so there was that. But I mean, I think that's funny. Chris Davis always says, you don't choose to live in Leightonstone, you get washed up here by the tides of life. <laughs> and I think that's quite good. I suppose we had a community feeling, because when I moved here, I knew nobody. Absolutely nobody. We moved here in the middle of winter. I had a one-year-old baby, and we were living in a 14-foot caravan out, out the back of a building site, which we'd kind of ripped apart. Had we known, we could have just left it as a house and had big fires in it all winter and started in the spring but various things had happened as it delayed the building work and then by the time winter came we had scaffolding up and everything had been ripped out so we lived in this caravan anyway so I knew Nora first Nora and Noel met Noel scrumping apples in my back garden and he we came out of the back door to introduce ourselves and say oh, we bought this house it was really derelict 157 and Noel immediately hopped back over the fence, leaving Nora to explain their presence. <laughs> <laughs> Ran away with his apple No, I think he was going somewhere. So they were the first people we knew. And I didn't know anyone else. And I couldn't drive till Sonia was two. And we didn't have two cars anyway. And the snow came down and I didn't have sledges. I had a baby buggy. And baby buggies don't go in the snow. No, they don't. Um, and there I was in a 14-foot caravan. And, you wow. know, in the middle of various other marital upheavals that I won't go into, because you never kiss and tell, do you? But anyway, so I got to know people. What happened was, a bit like the Just So stories, my first friend was Chris Davis, because I looked in the paper for local groups. And if you've got a child at school, you go, but and you meet people at the school gates. But in those days, there wasn't much like you do in libraries for, for toddler groups. Yeah, yeah. Chris <coughs> used to run the Children's Community Centre, which you won't remember, but if you come out of Leightonstone Station at the back entrance, there's a big house on the corner of Fairlock Road, I think. And that was a children's community centre. And there was a toy library, and she ran childminders. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, that is very much like how... That's exactly like that. what I do now. Yeah. And up, up the top of the uh, children's community centre was a flat, and that's where she and Dave lived. And they'd come from Bristol. Chris had worked for Oxfam or someone. don't know what Dave had done. But anyway, he was a dustman at the time we met him. And he then slowly trained to be a carpenter and a builder. Anyway, the first friend was Chris, because I went, I found this group, and I thought, well, I'll go along there, I might get to know some people. And in fact, what happened was I became friends with Chris, who was running the place, and helped her, she was setting up a toy library, so I helped her catalogue some of the toys and stuff. And it was there I met Anna. Um, yeah, you're very, very close Yes, friend. and I will say this on the internet, and I saw this wonderful bottom in a pair of jeans with a very fashionable double brown Italian leather belt on, and I thought, cool, that doesn't look like the kind of person you usually meet here. She looks really <laughs> interesting just from her behind. Anyway, it turned out to be Anna, and she'd just come back from Italy with the girls. she just left her husband, and she was living in Leightonstone with her parents and stuff. So that's where I met Anna. And Carolyn, do you remember the McGregors, Danielle and Sarah? I probably and... met them, I, I can't recall. Yeah, Carolyn and I, Carolyn was a kind of child-minded for me while I went back to work. And, yeah. stuff. and then I got a job 
in Walthamstow at a school two and a half days a week, and that's where I met Teresa and the whole network of people. It's kind of fascinating to me, this, because I didn't know about any of this. It just felt like you've always been a big part of this community. I mean, of course, you had had to come here at some point, and when you came here, you wouldn't know It was lots of different links, and we built them up. I mean, Chris and I started the food co-op. We stood outside this terrible health food shop that there was in Kirkdale, where the olive is now, and inside it, there were the two, God bless them, most unhealthy-looking elderly people you've ever seen in your life with a load of jars with dried herbs and pills on the shelves. I mean, it's not what you call a health food shop. I wish there was something a bit nicer in Leightonstone like you get in wherever Camden. So we decided we'd start a food co-op, which is what we did. And she drew on networks. She had lots of networks, actually, because she had childminders networks and from the playgroup and all that, you know, her networks. And then some people were in a babysitting circle. So the first food co-op was in Frederick Tower, I think it was called, down Montague Road, down the other end of Leightonstone. And it was on the ninth story. And I think we had 12 items and nine families who were members. And we were weighing, we were weighing out honey in those days and olive oil and stuff like that. And it was all very... I mean, we had a food cop newsletter at one point And, you know, so it's, and we lent each other things like ladders. And so that was quite good. That made a big network and, and people were drawn in. Were you att- attracted to the idea of being part of the community then? I mean, because I don't know what I feel about communities or not. I, I, I'm in favour of them, but I'm quite antisocial in lots of ways. I, I, mm. I, I'm... And I, I, I kind of want to be more of a. But you're quite structured in your social contact, aren't you? You arrange to see. People. I try to be, yeah. yeah. But that's because you want to write and stuff. I mean, for us, it was kind of weird because we didn't live in the centre of Leightonstone. We lived on Whipscross Road, so in order to drop in, you'd have had to come to Whipscross Road. Yeah. But then people might be quite well going for a walk on the common, and the Hitchcock wasn't there then. Oh right, right. Okay. that's another thing. Um, there was a Hindu temple next to us, just started. When we first moved in, that was a Christian science church, and they had a congregation of about, I don't know, 15 people. And that's the temple that's still there now? And then it was okay. taken over by Hindus. Ah, right, okay. A thriving yeah. Hindu temple. So, I mean, it was it was funny. We, we did have lots of networks, but the food co-op kind of made Simon get to know people, because he was working in Waltham Abbey. Yeah. So he got to know the kind of husbands of the people in the food co-op. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. And then I knew lots of people through jobs. I mean, I worked first at McKenty in Walthamstow, and then I got a job in the partially sighted school, and I made, obviously, friends at those schools. I set up, at one point, a second-hand children's clothes service <laughs> with... Um, oh, gosh, I'd forgotten that. I worked for Simon's father in Woodford. A family business was in Woodford. As you stand at the top of George Lane... There's a, an office block, and White Sea and Baltic Company had the top floor, and they were moving because the kind of, I don't know, steel crisis or something had happened, and there'd been this big slump. So they had uh, works on the Isle of Dogs, and they had an office in this place in Woodford, and they had to make a brave move, which was to move the works up north to Garford, and I suppose the offices must have gone north as well. But I think the works went first, and then, then the offices were moved. So... I had a little part-time job uh, clearing out the archives. You have to keep company archives for seven years or something, and then you have to do something with them. I can't remember. But anyway, I was doing all this, cataloguing things and chucking stuff out that was too old or unnecessary. And Sonia used to come with me, and she was about 18 months old. And there had been an accounts clerk there who had left to have children, but came back occasionally when the tea lady was on holiday, because in those days you had a tea lady with a trolley who would arrive at 11 o'clock and do everybody's tea. Yeah. So Anna used to come back and be the tea lady, different Anna. Anyway, got friends with her, we started off this second-hand clothes service, where we took stuff in, mended it, cleaned it, washed it, sold it, you know, at playgroups and stuff. Did, did loads of things, actually, like that. 
was good. It wasn't an intentional thing to become part of a community, but when Simon and I separated, I had enough good friends and support within all my various networks. Yeah, it seems really essential at that stage. Yeah, that I wasn't going to move back to South London, even though my mum was there and a couple mm. of old friends, you know. I liked the area. I mean, it's very different from South London in that South London has wider streets and more trees and now has got incredibly posh. I mean, the fact that, you know, East Dulwich and Brixton are posh is completely unbelievable to me. Having Some parts of Brixton. Peckham. Yeah. Yeah, some parts. But in those days, Leightonstone was really cheap, relatively. We sold our two-bedroomed, quite nice upstairs maisonette for the same price as we bought that three-bedroom Georgian house on Rips Cross Road. Wow. Except it was, of course, unmortgageable because it was in a state, you know. I mean, it, no one could have got a mortgage on it. It had to be completely rebuilt, spent a lot of money. And obviously Simon's expertise yeah. saved an awful lot of other money than you'd have had to have spent. The other question that I ask people mm. is, what do you do now? Oh, what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, without going through a long and torturous boring thing, when I was thinking about a career, uh, uh, most of my decisions have been influenced by men, stupidly. The man I was with was going back to college, so I thought I'd do that, and I wanted to learn to sew, and there was a nearby teacher's training college that did dress and embroidery as a, a subject. And I thought, well, I can get the qualification. It was the 70s, so my plan had been to educate my children at home who would be eating fresh eggs and vegetables off the small holding and all this malarkey. So that's why I trained to be a teacher. Never intended to teach. Thought, well, I don't really want to send them to school. It's an appalling place. And then um, when I left Simon, or when I discovered we were very short of money, it was quite a good job to do with a child. And I actually discovered I quite liked it. didn't always like the school system or the people I had to work for which was mainly the reason for my promotion, actually, because often I didn't want to work for the other internal candidates who were applying, so I thought, well, i better apply myself. I was never ambitious as a teacher, never wanted to be a head teacher or anything like that. So I was a teacher for many years after that. For I went full-time in 1984 when I left Simon, and I stopped in 2010. Ten, yeah. So how long is that? 26 years. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, part time before that. Right. Part time before that. And now you're, I guess, re- retired. Is that the word? I guess. I took early retirement, aged fifty-six. <laughs> I think they reduce your pension if you take early retirement. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. So I had been intending to work for another year and then go part time because you can go straight back and work part time, and still earn the same pro rata salary. Yeah. But then obviously you get your pension. So. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to change it all. And, of course, now the state pension for women of my age is at 64. I'd have had to work part-time yeah. till I was 64. Now I just exploit my family by being the landlady. <laughs> yes, you're my, la- my, my sister and yeah. landlady. Yes. And I'm my dad's landlady. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm going to do in Yorkshire. I've been thinking about it because moving up and getting this house rebuilt, I kind of thought it would take a year or two. Well, I think it's going to probably take three I've started to go riding again. Wow. I good. go to a singing group. I don't practice the ukulele, which I'm supposed to do, and the guitar and the piano, and I've got the opportunity now. I've got a beautiful place to do it. But So I want to do that. But also I have this insane desire to do a bit of willow weaving or some country yeah. craft, which I could then maybe pass on to other. I mean, I like teaching. I, The last two years when I was teaching, I did uh, special needs jobs for about 10 years and management stuff. The last two years, I really enjoyed having six form as a tutor group, being back in the classroom, having my own environment, making up a few courses, sneaking them outside the national curriculum because they had spare modules. It was just wonderful. I enjoyed it. So I do enjoy teaching, but 
I wouldn't really want to do it part time. You know, if you're gonna if you're going to do it, you really need to be there all the time. The children are there, I think. Yeah. Or I have can, a very small group of that. children that you work with three days a week because it's not a part time occupation, really. No, well, I'm there, there. I'd want to be there. I'd want to be a whole part of a thing. So even though you sort of fell into teaching, mm. it sounds it sounds to me like you have a kind of a belief in it and a kind of passion for it. Is that true or is that a misrepresentation? I like it when people learn things and I have facilitated that. Okay. There is, there are not many better feelings than being the person coordinating what goes on in the classroom and 25 other people being really engaged in what they're doing and creative and being nice to each other and sparking off each other and you know and I talk technology so if you were making things in certain circumstances that could happen. What I really used to enjoy was you know kind of creative curriculum design which was squeezed out more and more by the national curriculum and targets yeah. and the paperwork and everything that everybody else moans about. But I have to say it was great in the last couple of years because I got quite demob happy. I thought, what can they do, really? Take me out and shoot me. <laughs> That's all they can do. They can sack me. Well, you know, by the time we've had the tribunal, I'll be at retirement age. And, you know, uh, so it actually was quite nice. And it was quite nice to be, to just play the mad old women's children because uh, then they are not quite sure what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, once you've got, obviously you couldn't do that if you didn't have a certain amount of respect no. from them yeah, and exactly. belief from them that you cared about them and were going to give them a good experience. But, yes, you could, you could be quite kooky. I achieved my ambition in my final year of teaching, which was to have a pancake race where you had team. Someone had to mix the pancake and someone had to cook it and then someone had to run with it and toss it, toss it and then someone had to eat it. <laughs> so I had a few mad, silly things like that. Ran lots of camps for kids and did creative activities. And yeah, that's, I mean... It was ahead of year, that was fun. Yeah. And you worked with special needs children near near, near the end-ish, didn't you? Or yeah, for te- right? in Newham, yeah. they don't have special schools, really. They have hardly any special schools. So that all those children are included in mainstream schools, yeah. so you have great big teams who look after them. And I like working with teaching assistants. I think they're fantastic, mostly. Good value for money. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they, you know, a lot of them really love the children, really committed to the children. And I had a really good team at this school in Newham, and... We accidentally got given a building and then we got Fords involved and they came and did it up for us and it was just a, a good development time really. And I had bosses who just let me have my head and let me get on with it Yeah. and helped me when I needed help. It was great. You're one of the few people who's given me a list of uh, topics. Only to, I... to stop you making me talk about things I might not want to talk about, <laughs> well, <laughs> like I... being retired. <laughs> well, that wasn't actually my idea. but uh... I don't believe in retirement. It wasn't my idea, The uh, that suggested topic, actually. When I talked to Jen, she had an idea that it was a kind of moment of, of big transition, and so you would uh, have radically changed your life, so it would be an interesting yeah, I mean, thing I to suppose, talk about. Yeah, I mean, I actually, it's funny, I've discussed this with Fred, but I think, you know, if you stay living in the same house and everything else stays the same, yeah. and then you suddenly cease doing your job, and yeah. don't have a part-time phasing out thing, that would be quite a shock. But if I had stayed here, I would have probably worked, as I say, three days a week, hopefully carried on at the same school, and you know. And it would have been okay to do that because having been there five days a week, I'd have had the established relationships that it would have been okay. But 
my life just totally changed. You know, I, I left London, I moved. Yes, massively changed. So, and that was quite exciting. I so I think change. I think the mistake, in a way, was to yeah. was to use the word retirement rather than yeah. to say yeah. you have lived in a place for years and years and years, and now you've just moved to Yorkshire and yeah. all that. Well, I, I do actually kind of think yeah. I've got the best of both worlds. Yeah, because I've still got a, a pied de terre, shall we say? Unless <laughs> <laughs> you chuck me out. Um, I've still got that here. Yeah, you know, and Sonia's still here, so I come back a lot. I mean, I think when the children are older, it might be different. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, because um, to, to explain the the living arrangement, me and me and Jen live in the house that Joe used to live in, but Joe has a couple of rooms, which we're we're in one of them now, which she lives in when she's staying in London. Her and her. Her, her partner but I actually quite like having a list I'm always interested in the answers to the questions that people give me for them about themselves yeah. trying to segue in from talking about teachers you put inner city schools and some of the great teachers you've worked with what's significant about inner city schools? I suppose just that you're working with quite a lot of disadvantaged children and theoretically if you help them achieve a certain standard of result education can be very very life-changing also just to get them engaged in education at all I do think actually some young people should not be in a school after the age of about 12 because I think they're completely square pegs in round holes I think they should be in some form of education or training which is what we call it now but I I think you know it's miserable for some of them I agree with that Um, so for me it was quite nice um, for me being in technology because you can usually accommodate people in a practical subject. It's not always easy, but you can usually accommodate every kind of learning style yeah. or interest a bit more easily, I would imagine, than if you're teaching them And have you French, always so. worked in London schools? Yeah, Cause always, yeah. I mean, because I'm, I'm working in London community mm. now, mm. and, you know, I guess that's probably part of the inner city, the significant thing is mm. that they're so diverse, culturally, ethnically, mm. educationally, everything is... You're fro- everything's thrown at you in those kind of and environments. And actually, Walton Forest and Enfield, where you work, are theoretically outer London boroughs. And there are pockets which, you know, are, are more kind of comfortable and a bit more middle class, a bit more money. But there are areas, like I think they call it the Eastern Corridor of Enfield, yep. which are really poor, or the south end of, of um, where Anna does Shawstar. Yep. That, that's a poorer end of Walton Forest. I mean, Hackney and, and um, Newham, not worked in Tower Hamlets, um, were, you know, the, the, the problems were more extreme. I mean, the way I explained it was when I worked in Newham, I left my mobile phone on the desk in my office and people kicked the door down and stole it. Whereas in Enfield, I left my mobile phone on my desk with the door open and someone stole it. They wouldn't have kicked the door down. To yeah. Stole it. And so it was kind of just a slightly different, a more extreme culture. But when I was working in Newham, the government were really throwing lots of um, money at the inner cities to reduce crime. Yeah. You know, they, they put all this, I can't remember what it was called now, excellence in cities money. So you had gifted and talented money and you had money for learning mentors and learning support units and all that. So you could be quite creative yeah. with some of the, the needs you encountered. Whereas sometimes the outer London boroughs didn't get all that had areas where the problems are really quite extreme that's true there's much less money in out in, mm. in the outer london boroughs and that you're right there are sometimes as extreme but yeah. i mean it's it, it, yeah you're it's difficult i mean to you know because needs change as well yeah that's very true i liked working with boys in hackney yeah i didn't i mean didn't that was a boys school brothers till you two but i mean you know i didn't grow up with boys of my own generation of brothers 
and it was a boys school yeah I did this girls project of research and then I got interested in what happens to the boys if you think in certain situations girls schools are better for girls what happens to the boys yeah and so I went and worked in a boys school for three or four years in Hackney and that was very interesting and I you know the, the boys there really valued education actually Lots of them were African boys. It was because it was um, uh, they had a prayer room quite early on oh, right. and stuff. There were lots of Asian boys and African boys, some Caribbean boys, and twenty percent of the group were Turkish. So, lots of Muslim children. But they did value education, even though often their parents came from very different views of what education would be like and what a teacher could do or should do, or you know. And I just thought it was really tough for them growing up. Lots of them were refugees, poor, and, you know, Hackney's a very harsh, or was, a very harsh area. There's some bits of uh, Hackney, Hackney now that's gentrified now. Yeah, oh, it's posh now, Hackney's like... Yeah. It's like some bits, stuff, some yeah. bits. <laughs> there's, still, there's still the pockets e- well, either way. Well, I where you have rich and poor quite close to each other. Yeah. You know, like Nairobi, there was 50% unemployment, but you had... That's kind of often when you get high crime, I think. It's I, interesting, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, 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 that, that's from something that I really notice about London, having lived in different parts of the country, is that mm. you, you, you walk down a street from a posh area to a really rough area, really and it's just, you know, you, you sense a change, and you realise, wait, wait, you know, that you've walked well, if you look at between the boundaries. How near Bermondsey is to kind of Tower Bridge, and exactly. all those really posh flats with yeah. La Pompe, La Tour, or whatever. Or even in the, the I mean, even in the outer London boroughs yeah. where I where I work you know yeah. Edmonton Green is, is not not very far away from no. uh, Oakwood and Southgate yeah. and places like that which yeah. are very very different in different way. before you worked in the boys school you did a, a project about girls achievement oh it's called the gender action project it was yes and it was a Waltham Forest thing a whole bunch of women in the days when they were worried about girls achievement particularly in maths and science I mean now girls are outstripping boys in GCSE results in state schools but in those days it was the other way around particularly in maths and science so various people did various projects in their schools. It was all kind of action research. And we wanted to look at having all boys groups for maths and science. And because they were split in a certain way within the timetable, that meant there had to be some single-sex groups in technology as well. It was a flawed experiment from the start because we couldn't make all of the groups single-sex groups. And it kind of ceased after three years because... The male staff involved didn't really see the point of trying it. And also the all-boys groups, particularly the lower-ability ones, were absolutely horrendous in terms of discipline for Mm. any teacher who didn't have, you know, really good classroom management and control. So it was interesting, but what we did was we analysed it. You know, we had various observations of the children in the different settings. We looked at the results. We had interviews with the staff and the children. And I think there's a published chapter in the book somewhere by myself and Rita Joseph, who is the Tom Hood people. Oh, cool. Um, but it, that was very interesting. And at the same time, Sonia was coming up to secondary school age. And I thought, well, if she was going to a kind of local state school, at the time, Leytonstone was undergoing a huge transition because we used to have junior and senior high schools in Walton Forest. It used to be 11 to 14, oh, right. and 14 to 18. Okay. So my first job was in a 14 to 18 school. But the year that Sonia was, or the year before that Sonia was transferring schools, they changed it all. And they made 11 to 16 schools and turned two of the bigger grammar schools, the boys and the girls ones, into sixth form colleges. So Leighton Sixth Form College. Okay. They changed, and Monarchs, that great big place in Walthamstow, yeah. they became sixth form colleges. So Leightonstone School had been a girls' school. And I think the year Sonia went, or the year before, they just introduced the first lot of boys. 
And I just thought that was such a transition for a school. I mean, all the staff had, had their jobs put in a pool and they all reapplied. What do you think about boys' and girls' schools and mixed schools? Do you think that they're, that they're all valuable, different possibilities, or do you think that mixed is better? Well, I think, I think if it's a good enough school with bright children, because, you know, it's competitive to get into schools now, whatever anyone says, yeah. then I don't think it makes much difference. I think it's great if you can work in you know, an environment with the opposite sex and learn how to do that. So, for example, where Fred's children went, St Peter's School, I don't think it made much difference whether they were in a mixed-sex group or a single-sex group. So maybe I'm wrong. It'd be interesting to talk to them about it. Yeah. But I think in a school, you know, where the behaviour is on the edge, groups can dominate other groups. Yes. And it used to be, for example, that, you know, the boys dominated the playground time for football or the computer time or whatever it happened to be. I think girls and boys, generally speaking, do learn in slightly different ways and it might be easier to cater to one or the other's interests. But in this project, we had a very good male metalwork and woodwork and craft design technology teacher and he did some fabulous projects with the girls, kind of adapted moulded plastic cars into moulded jewellery or whatever it happened to be. Yeah. So, and that kind of worked quite well with the girls and the boys because they were both making things they were more interested in. You could say you were just encouraging their sexual stereotypes, I suppose, <laughs> anyway. You've got to work with what you've got, though. Yeah, I think in the worst situations, they are exposed to each other's worst excesses. And I don't think teenagers are particularly nice to each other. They're also no. erotic about their own issues, aren't they? But I mean, I suppose you might as well say, you know, the black kids should be educated somewhere different from the white kids. I don't know. So it's, that it's you don't have racist incidents. It's a complicated thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. when I think about my own school life, yeah. I think, well... If I'd have been in a boys' school, I don't know if I would have survived my adolescence. Well, no, for you, boy, boy like you were, a <laughs> I, nice, I think reasonable, that, kind yeah, of not macho boy. I, I think, think that would have been hard for you. The, you know, yeah. in lots of ways, the girls were my allies growing up. Yeah. But that said, I, I think, you know, I, I, I can see lots of reasons to keep boys and girls separate. I mean... Uh, well, we thought my... maybe this experiment, that you actually had a mixed school, and I think this would probably be my answer, is that you would have a mixed school, but that for certain subjects they would have the option of working in single-sex groups. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, you know, for example, maths. Um, I was in the bottom set for maths at school, and I did really, really well. Is in the bottom set, had a teacher I liked for the first couple of years, kind of going at my speed, did really, really well, so they put me up a set. And then I just, I didn't particularly like the teacher, didn't get it, got discouraged, you know. So I think certain people work better in certain groups for certain subjects in yeah, the ideal world. that's true. I mean, we always used to find that, you know, for woodwork and metalwork in the olden days, you could get one girl opting. And she'd be a toughie, you know, yeah. she's in a class with boys. And actually, they kind of often liked her and respected her, and it was fine. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's personality as well, isn't it? You know, I think in an ideal world, you'd have the choice. Yeah. It's and just... nobody would dominate, because everything would be so well-controlled, and there would be so many resources. But I just think when it's not like that... Yeah, we haven't got an ideal world, so yeah. maybe... And I, I think it's quite distracting, isn't it? Because the girls are flirting with the boys, and the boys are... Not all I think, them, generally speaking, boys will show yeah. off in yeah. a different kind of way yeah. when there's... I mean, they'll, they'll show off. I think they'll show off in a different way when it's just boys. I think yeah. that... And, and girls, probably similarly, when you're, when you're hit with all these hormones and you're trying to learn, mm. learn, learn, probably useful to not have extra distractions of... The answer is I don't know, the actually, yeah. really. I don't know what's best, but I think there are definitely issues that should be 
kind of considered in an ongoing way and um, you know with respect to the individuals involved and but for my as I say my decision was that was going to be up there a big period of transition with a lot of teachers who've no, never taught boys suddenly yeah. having to manage that yeah and I've been doing this research about girls achievement but I felt exactly the same as you I thought well, this is all very well for the girls but if I had a nice kind of civilised little boy <laughs> you know not a great footballer <laughs> not a kind of a person who liked that all male thing yeah what would happen to him so that's why I went and worked in a boys school but I mean it, it is so hard to unpick it all I mean because arguably maybe the reason that I one of the reasons that I got bullied at school and I was bullied by girls as well as boys anyway but mm. I mean might might have been because there were girls around to, to impress off, yeah. so you can't ever I mean you can't 100% know what why you know and how. I had boys school I mean I had boys from one extreme to the other I had the most chauvinistic boys you know who if I said something and they disagreed would march straight to the headmaster and complain about me you know and say she's only a woman literally Jesus well, I mean, what year was this this was in year 10 no, but what year in terms of time? Oh, well, it was, eight, uh, gosh, 90, 92, 93. Jesus. And no, at I the other end of the scale, I mean, it was cultural, I think. At the other end of the scale, I mean, I had Addis, who was this wonderful Bosnian boy who would, you know, stay after school till half past six, and he was making a picnic mat for himself and his girlfriend, which had, you know, a pocket for the bottle of wine to keep cool and, you know, chess to play. And, you know, we'd have these long chats while we watched a hackney sunset about what life had been like in Bosnia and the politics. And, you know, I mean, he was just like the perfect kind of PC boy, you know. One of the things that you sort of put on, on the list is, and I think it's definitely a, a very interesting subject to hear about, is changing attitudes towards women and relationships during your adult lifetime. It's quite a big, big topic, but it seems to be, since we're talking well, about boys and girls' since schools... Since we're talking about education, then, um, when I first started teaching, which was in the late 70s, the registers went, all the boys, then all the girls, or all the girls, then all the boys. They were separated, wow. right? That may seem like a very small thing, no, but she's, it was unbelievable to me. to me. I mean, you wouldn't have all the races separate, all the people who were clever separate. And I remember going to the school secretary and saying, oh, would you mind altering my title? I'm actually Ms, I'm not Mrs. Partly because I was about to get separated, but it wasn't just that. You know, I just thought Ms was the appropriate title for me. And she said, oh, I'll have to ask the head teacher if that's all right. I'll have to ask his permission. And I thought, well, that's very strange, you know, it's not his name, it's quite... Yeah, it's your name. My mother, for example, wasn't allowed to wear trouser suit to school when she started teaching in the early 70s. Had to wear a skirt. I had an inspector once complain as part of her evaluation of my lesson, and this would have been in the 80s, that I was wearing boots. I mean, I had little ankle boots on, yeah. like Jen wears to school. Yeah. So I was wearing boots to teach in the kitchen. Now... I mean, you obviously you didn't wear sandals because of health and safety yeah. if you spilt hot things on your toes. But ankle boots, I'm not quite sure where she was coming from there. Do you think that attitudes towards women have improved in your lifetime? Well, I wouldn't like to speak ill of the dead, but I always used to think Princess Diana set back British feminism by at least 20 years. <laughs> I don't know. Improved. I know what you mean. When I worked in that boys' school, it often surprised me how well some of those boys understood issues of sexism. And I thought I would get a lot of sexist treatment, but actually they were kind of gallant rather than sexist. They saw women as a different species. And I used to take them to universities as a group, 
we had this thing called Choice, which was a project for kids who families had never been to university. So I used to take a group of my boys to university, and there were lots of other schools with groups there. And it was really interesting because all the girls from the other schools liked our boys better. And it wasn't just because they were handsome hackney boys, it was also because they were very gallant. Yeah. And I mean, they'd do things like on parents' evenings or something, you know, someone would do a vote of thanks or prize givings, and, and they would have clubbed together and they'd have bought me a bunch of flowers. You'd never get that in a mixed school because all the, I suppose, the attention, I mean, I wasn't a young woman, I was in my 40s, but all the attention goes to the girls or the boys. Yeah. Whereas if you're the only women, I don't know, I mean, they, they treat me like their, their mum, you know. But they were very nice to me. And they, if you were carrying a box of heavy stuff up the stairs, and it was a seven-storey building, and I worked on the seventh storey, often you went in the lift, but quite often it was out. And, you know, they'd often say, well, let me carry that. You know, and they had this kind of gallantry. And the girls used to like that. So in a way, I thought, well, you know, actually they think of girls as very different, but I don't think they thought of them as unequal. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, that gallantry thing, though, because mm. some people see that as, as part of the problem as well. You're not treating someone completely as an equal mm. if you're treating them as a, a kind of... It's, the, it's that whole, like, Madonna whore thing where you treat some, some women like yeah, but they're it perfect it and other women like... It wasn't on that like, level. Yeah. They didn't treat you like you were perfect. I mean, I'm not, they, I mean, I'm not yeah, saying that they no, did. They I'm just saying... You, they would give you flowers and act like they liked... They liked having a different kind of influence around. Yeah. It was funny. but And also, they, they'd say things like, you know, Tom, are you going to wear a suit tomorrow? You know, and we know you've been doing dyeing or whatever, and, you, you know, you've worn those trousers because of that, because we were asking you about why don't you always wear a suit, because it's a very formal place. And I said, oh, yes, of course I will, you know. And, you know, and I remember one of them once saying, oh, you've had your hair cut, that's good. My mum gets lots of split ends, and, you know, have you got some split ends? Is that way? And they were quite interested in all those... Without being impertinent, yeah, and it was interesting. I liked it. Well, I, liked I think that is interesting. Dance. I mean, I can't really understand. I mean, I understand that sexism happens, and I, I think that it happens. St- I think there has been an improvement in terms of if you look at like the sixties or the fifties mm. or the forties, going back to then. Certainly, there's been an improvement since the suffragette movement because women have the right to vote, but we don't have equality. I don't think we do. The thing I can never really understand is how men can't see women as equal because surely they've got par- you know, mothers and sisters and, 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 and they've got women in their lives who aren't... You know, I've never really understood that. That's, my, that's the thing that really confuses me. I don't think they see them as unequal. I just think that's... I was talking to Dad about this. It's a bit of a default mode. Like I was reading a thing about David Cameron, you know, telling that woman to calm down, dear. That, that to me, is kind of public schoolboy default mode. Yeah. And he just slipped into it. I don't think it necessarily means he's completely disrespectful to the job that Samantha Cameron... I mean, she's a lawyer or something. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's very hard for anyone who's never done unpaid work to understand what it feels like to do unpaid work. And... Being a housewife and staying at home looking after children is unpaid work. And it's very hard to explain to anyone who's never done it how hard it is and the amount of self-discipline that's needed. And in a way, the better you do it, it's like most jobs, the more effortless it looks. So if someone goes out of the house in the morning, be it the husband or the wife or the man or the woman, and comes back and everything's relatively tidy and the children are quite happy and they've been washed and fed and over the day and you know there isn't kind of dirty nappies strewn all over the floor and 
whatever could have happened. They don't know the chaos that may have gone on in the day. Yeah. Or the effort that has to go into maintaining that thing and entertaining those children and, you know, I don't know, whatever the person has been doing in the house. You have no idea, really. So I think that, that can be a problem. I mean, that's one of the reasons I like Fred, because he stayed at home and looked after his children for nine years, I think it was, and was the main carer. And I think I respect someone who would do that. You know, and he was in his late 30s, I think, so that must have been a big yeah. adaptation. Yeah, abs- you know, certainly an adaptation. And, yes, and Polly was a major breadwinner, you know, and, so that, and they had... They work that out. I think that's... And Dad did that as well, didn't Well, yeah, certainly Dad is the person who I thought of, certainly in my early childhood, as doing most of the housework. Well, he, and stuff he was like your that. main carer because I, I would think say Dad that, went back yeah. to work when you were a toddler, really. And I yeah. think I had someone to help because he was still working and going to London. I think he had a child when he came to the house. Oh, I didn't know that. I think. Yeah. Because I think Dad was still doing quite But certainly once we'd moved, when, once he'd retired, he was yeah. pretty much full-time yeah. the, the main well, once carer. once he moved to Wales, yeah. I don't think North he was Wales, doing yeah. films anymore. That's right. I mean, if you fell over, you would shout dad. You would shout <laughs> mum. I, I agree, yeah. yeah. Whereas Lily would shout mum, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's a funny thing. I mean, it, I don't understand, again, I, I don't understand why people don't see that unpaid work as work. I mean, certainly I do. I think that there is more argument to be made if a man says well I've been to or a woman whoever goes out I've been to work from nine till five you've been at work nine to five we share our money therefore both of our work is for us our relationship you know it's for our thing so why should I have to come home and do extra work on top of that there is an argument for that well but there is no really argument because the, the other person has been working all day while he's at work I mean yeah. arguably why should either of them have to do got. extra work after that? No, point? I mean, you know, we had some friends, we could never understand how well they managed it. And in fact, I don't think they're together now, but they had four children. She's actually now a headmistress in her later years, and all the children are very bright and very interesting and nice. But she had the four children all day. He was, I think, an archaeologist or something all day. And when he got home at five o'clock, he took all four children over, apparently, I seem to remember, entertained them, gave the little ones their baths, read them a bedtime story and she had an hour and a half or whatever where she cleared up the house got their dinner ready you know because she'd fed them but look at see you know so they were both still working weren't they well yeah fair enough Although, but I mean, if he'd come home and said my god i had a terrible day at work well but sometimes i mean sometimes people say that 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 isn't exactly like that's the kind of if he's looking after the kids mm. that's the kind of fun bit and she's still mm. doing the rubbish bit like that but some people me, say that. with four kids all day clearing up the toys and making the dinner would be like heaven yeah I'm, I'm, I mean yeah. I, I do believe that yeah but I Changes mean I think there's a rest and all that and yeah also it means he gets to see the kids and they get to see him so but I think some families don't and also having you know done a stressful job sometimes you want to come in and switch off for a bit because when you're at work I mean I suppose other people or other factors are your boss and dictate what you do especially in a school, for example, where, you know, you've got this rigid timetable and then someone has a fine and, get, and arguably at home you're more of your own boss, except if you've got small children. Yeah. They pretty much dictate it's a tricky when they isn't it? when they feel they're napping or yeah, exactly. they fall over or, you know, when they sleep or... But, I mean, I think whilst... I mean, whilst I... I mean, I, I completely agree that men, generally speaking, haven't appreciated mm. the amount of work that's done in the home and mm. still don't appreciate that. 
think it's men. I think anyone who doesn't. Yeah, do it. no, I would agree with that distinction mm. as well. I mean, I'm sure that's the case. There's some things you can't imagine until you've done them. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, yeah. I, I would say a, a teenage girl and a teenage boy are just as disrespectful to their parents' uh, housework, mm. regardless of their gender. Like, mm. like a teenage girl will treat their mother Happy like, worse. yeah, terribly, <laughs> yeah. and you, you know, and, you, and 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 so yeah, I, I agree with that. But I mean, I, I also sometimes think that that it's not easy either side. Like when you look at the traditional family model, it wasn't easy for the woman, but often it wasn't easy for the man. And when no. I think in terms of equality, I believe in equality for women because I care about human beings. But I also believe in equality for everyone because mm. I'm sick of having to be the male yeah, uh, model, the male feel, role. A lot of men that feel like that. I mean, and I don't like the expectations that are put on men or women by society and generally. There are a lot of men that would like to be at home looking after the children, spending more time. With their children yeah, and def- you know doing more of the nurturing stuff definitely i mean i've run dad's groups and you know mm. at, without a doubt there are there are dads out there who are hungry to be mm. spending more time with their children and often they can't because they're men and they're mm. going out to work and they're being the main breadwinner mm. it's very reasonable for the woman to resent the man if he's not appreciating the work that mm. she's doing but often because the woman is feeling unappreciated they're not appreciating the work that's being done that's winning the money that gives allows her to not Sonia made a good point which was you know if you're not doing it all the time like at the beginning of the holiday when when Jess was little and Keith would start looking after her he wouldn't be as confident because she was doing it all the time and he'd been at work yeah it's tricky when you've got used to she used to go to work in the day Sonia because she was a a technician so she still had to go in in the holidays that's right and she actually said it was nice because um it meant they they got to know each other better again and got confident with each other again. And then she kind of took a bit more of a backseat. And she said it was only if she was out of the house that would happen. Because often if the woman's around, they're so used to doing it, they'll step in. Yeah. Before anyone else gets a chance to maybe step in and maybe do it in a different way, but, you know, just as good a way. Yeah. So I suppose there's that. But it's difficult. There's certainly that issue in terms of parenting a child. Mm. Often both parents have different styles and one might look at the other one and think you're not doing it right mm. when in fact and, and and that will increase their burden then because they'll be trying to mm. they'll be trying to circumvent each other and and, and, or, and to be fair on the other side the one who spends most time with the child often will have more effective strategies yeah that's very true too if i dive in now that child's not going to therefore have a massive temper tantrum whereas the other person who's not as tuned in yeah. because they're not with the child as much might not realize although it's very child and parent dependent because mm. it might be that because you don't have as much time with the child you have more authority yeah whereas they're, they're used to saying no to the person who's there all the time they won't yeah. necessarily well, say no to the one who's not yeah. so 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 it's so, I mean, I just think, you know, it's so hard to find your way through life in a relationship or, or not in a relationship with kids or without. That I mean, I just, you know, have a lot of sympathy with people generally, it's whatever the circumstances. Change, isn't it? Because, you, you know, all the time you can have together without a child, suddenly there's a third person around all the time. Yeah. I mean, the flip side of that is that if you are parents of a child, whatever you do for the child, either of you, you're also doing for the other person. Yeah, that's because right. Because if someone does something doing... for your child... Yeah. You're always delighted. It's an act of kind of giving something to you as well as to your child because of how much you love your child. So mm. it works both ways. I mean, I guess when Sonia was young as well, you were actually, for a lot of that time, a single mother. Were you or, or kind of a... split up when she was seven. So, oh, so not when she was young. So when, when she was... Not when she was really little. So when she was a teenager, you were a single mother. Kind of. I mean, she went to yeah, see him. Yeah, yeah, I was. But I don't remember a lot of conflict. And, and fun enough... 
in a way, what you were saying about, you know, conflict between parents. Yeah. When teenagers happen, I think that's often when it really comes out because yeah. people have different attitudes to how to deal with teenage repulsiveness. I suppose I was used to teenagers because I worked with them and I realised it happened to all of them. It wasn't anything particular to my own teenage. Yeah. <laughs> like a disease that comes over them. The things that they could do when they were 10, they can't suddenly do when they're 13. Yeah, it's Like funny. talk or anything. But suddenly wasn't too bad as a teenager, I don't think. And... Actually, thinking about it, I mean, they her friends used to come here quite often and they used to go to Anthony's mum's quite often. And I remember my friend Jo Tollett saying that when she was younger, she quite liked just having one parent because there wasn't any kind of, you know, difference of opinion in the house. It was always very clear. Whichever parent they were with, that's what happened at that point. No, I think you're right. I think, I mean, I, I think you're, the teenage is often a big flashpoint in a relationship. It's hard how when you're, you're worried, deal. though, because teenagers do cause you a lot of worry and stress. And I can remember, for example, going out with friends, just walking up to the common to see where they got to. They used to take their music up to the common. But most of them, they were hanging out together most of the time, so that was okay. I think teenagers also, the, the, the time when attitudes to gender and sexuality come up mm. for both the parents as well mm. so often you know there'll be diff- conflicting views on how a young boy or a young girl should behave in in in, in their teenage years and that that can be a real problem yeah. I, mean, I think in the best situation you get two sets of opinions don't you yeah both of which are useful that's right you're the teenager you know yeah, so about this time in in the conversation, I always ask people if they have anything to plug or promote. What did I say I wanted to talk about? I think I'm very boring. What, what I, I, well, you've talked about lots of things, but I, I, I thought if you if you didn't have something to plug, you could maybe talk about some of the inspirational teachers that you've known, because that's on the list and would kind of be a plug. But if you've well, got I think something... allotments and great teachers. What did Confucius supposed to have said? If you want to be happy for a... An hour get drunk, for a year get married, or for your life be a gardener. <laughs> I, I'm not religious, but I think the closest I get to religion is gardens and gardening and nature, and I'd be one of those Wiccan people if I was going to go into magic. It's perhaps the fastest growing... There's people into Wicca, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's a miracle that a carrot seed knows to become a carrot. Mm. Great teachers I've known. I suppose I learned more about teaching from watching good teachers teach. Yeah, and that was one of the really good things about being a special needs person in Newham because you've got to go into other people's classrooms and work with them. Yeah, and I'm not going to name any of the great teachers because I'd probably miss some out. That that's very reasonable. I, I thought that it was a, an interesting. What I would say is a great tactic. teacher is like a excuse me if you're religious anyone a god, you know. There's the negotiating of the current hoops you have to jump through but you know a great teacher is you write your script you do your performance you liaise with the entire audience maybe on a one-to-one basis at various times yeah but no I mean a great teacher if you said to most people you know here's 25 children look after them for an hour and a half even with a bit of training and a specialist environment they go what I mean it's, it's quite something I think yeah. What the government says about class sizes is, of course, rubbish, but it's quite a lot of children being looking after, isn't it, really? 25. Yeah. Especially, you know, okay, you've got a good um, classroom assistant and you've got a structure there. I find it hard to control 25 children when all of their parents are in the room. 
<laughs> or the worst for the parents <laughs> well yeah but they're so under five my, my kids are under five yeah yeah that's a big group actually of under fives but yeah. I, I just <laughs> it's think massive, a yeah. good teacher you know there, there's is it the guardian or one one paper does that thing about you know my teacher and they have the person talking about their teacher and the teacher talking about the person probably is the guardian most people know an inspirational teacher don't they? I mean, have you got one you can remember yeah or two or three well Chris Hardin, my drama teacher, was definitely the most inspirational of all of my teachers and had a massive effect on my life and pretty much provided me with a safe space within the school. But if I didn't have, I don't know what I would have done. So he was very inspirational. But And there's kind of primary school teachers that I remember being very inspired by as well. I'm, I'm sure everyone can name someone. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, can you name an inspirational teacher that you had when you were in I'm not putting names to people. When I was at school by self, um... No. Not really, no. <laughs> in primary school, I can remember, absolutely loving yeah. some of my teachers. I had a, a wonderful guy in the third year of the juniors called Mr Langdon, who'd been in the RAF, and he used to give us funky things to do, like, he'd give us recorders and get us to go and... Uh, position ourselves around the building and send each other messages in Morse code, you know. See, that's cool. And we dissect fish and we had chess competitions. But then the next year, the deputy head who had us said, you didn't do enough maths, you're going to get to the 11 plus. And, yeah. and classes were big then. I mean, really big, 43 kids and stuff. There was a bowl, which we were the baby boomers. And the, the other guy may have had a point. I don't know. Well, it's tricky, um, isn't it? I mean, I can... Just because you enjoy something. If you're unlucky, then... You- you may have never had an inspirational teacher because I should think that for every inspirational teacher people can mention, and I'm not going to name names in this mm. case, but I can think of teachers who were the opposite of inspiration, who were yes. damaging to my education yeah. or to my personal life. Absolutely. And th- there's a lot more safeguards to stop that now than there were Maybe. physically. There are. Mm. Like a generation of, of, of children were, were beaten by their teachers. You know, mm. we, we're, we're no longer in a situation where that happens. Mm. You can still have nightmare mm. teachers, I'm sure. Mm. So we're, we're pretty much at time now. Good. So it's been a, it has been a pleasure like getting... dinner. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we're going out for dinner. And it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. It's been interesting uh, from my point of view. You're probably doing that thing that everybody does where you're worried that it's not any good. I can, I, I can sense. Well, no, it's good to have a chance, a bit of space to talk about what people have done. Because in a way, being a lot older than you, I've kind of kept up with your life as it's gone along. Yeah. You know, what's Dave doing? Oh, he's at school, he's doing this, he's doing the GCSE, he's doing that, he's going to university. But you don't know about that no, part of my life, do absolutely. you, that early part, because you were little. Well, well, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about this project, really. Mm. I mean... And I've been sort of telling everybody, whether you're recording it or not, to mm. talk to your parents about what life was like before you were born. Mm. That's been one of my. That's been one of the things I've learnt that mm. we should all do, mm. because, you know, they were different people then, and you, in a way, I've always thought of you. you whilst you're my sister, yeah, you're much more. Generation. You're more an aunt yeah. in some ways, yeah. which is weird. I mean, and 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 Sonia's almost. Your daughter, she's almost an aunt. She's, she's, I think of her as an aunt because she, uh, was, older. she was older yeah. and but you you're know, actually cool, her uncle. Young, yeah, I know it's weird. It's yeah. very, it's very complicated yeah. the, the family dynamics. But yeah. all of the older than me women in the family, I've always thought of kind of like different kinds of aunts, you know. And I guess in that respect, I'm probably, I, I mean. You're not the youngest in the family. Though, no, I'm not. Well, I've got, a, I've got a younger sister. Yeah. 
we don't have a straightforward brother sister thing because we never really lived together when we were growing now, up. Did you know that if anything had happened to Peter and June simultaneously, you were all on my list to look after? Yeah, I, that makes sense. I think I've I think I've been told that before. Tony, you, Rosie, Sonia, and so my every God. time one of you got out of university and got a job, I went. God for that, you know, because I guess I mean I I would have done it, but that would have been hard work, I think. And, and you know, everyone would have been terribly traumatised. I mean, I did think about it. And that's what I mean, really. Um, it's that's um, that's what I mean by an art position. So yeah. I mean, if 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 anything happened to Rosie, I yeah. would imagine that I would get involved with her daughter. Mm. I would like that to be the case. But but then that's the kind of feeling that you have as an uncle. Mm. You know, that's and that's. That, I mean, I guess you have it as a, a a brother or sister as well. I guess. I I. I, I suppose I did have a feeling of slight responsibility for you. I mean, when Dad had his heart attack. I was in Amsterdam when he had the Cornish heart attack. He'd gone down to Cornwall oh, yeah. to look after Sonia, you and Tony. I was in bed with, with him my when, mum. He, when, he, when he had yeah. the heart attack. And you yeah. were only about four and I, you were very close to him. I think I was six, but maybe four. You okay. were little. Yeah, I, was, I know I was little. I know I was Start little. naked on the beach talking to another little boy. Anyway, I'll show you those pictures, but they're in Yorkshire, but one day I'll show you. Anyway, I went down to Cornwall. I, I was in Amsterdam, so I got the early ferry back, which was an overnight ferry, got to Preston Road, got in about nine in the morning, slept till four in the afternoon, then drove to Cornwall and got there at midnight. Because Sheila at this point, of course, because Peter was in hospital, yeah. 40 miles away, was looking after you, Sonia and Tony. Yeah, that makes sense. And I thought, gosh, they'll all be a bit traumatised. So we had a few days when I must have looked after you all, actually, because Peter was in hospital for a while. Mm. How did we get back? I'm not sure. I remember waking up and him not being in the bed with me and going through and him being in a different bed and then him getting taken away, but I don't remember anything much. Because I don't think I'd Maybe train? No, I wouldn't have driven. Well, I had a car down there. Okay. I wouldn't have driven you all back. I think it was. It might have been a train. But it wouldn't have been Dad on the train. No. But Tony was... If I was... I think I was six. So Tony would have been 12. So maybe you could have put us on a train and us been met at the other end. I'm not sure. I I, I mean, I I don't know. That's something we have to ask Dad. Because I really don't remember how... I mean, I can't imagine that I'd have driven you and Tony and Sonia home in a 2CB. No. But, no. No. I think I would, have, I would. I would think I would or have remembered Sue that maybe. Maybe because he he went to stay with her afterwards. Did he? Yeah. Or maybe you went to Sue's with Dad for a day or so, and then June came and got you. I remember something. seeing him there when he was recuperating there, when he was walking Mickey Moogles, the dog, every day. I think that was later. Yeah, but I mean, I for me, it's childhood memories. They they have no yeah. timeline, do they? Yeah. Like I, I think that's. When, when life starts speeding up is when you start having a timeline yeah. and then that, that's when it seems to speed up but when you're a kid it just seems open because you don't have any timeline. I always thought it was because you experienced time as a, a fraction of your life already. Ah, that might be it too. Yeah, um, so like a year for you now is a 30th but when you're 10 it's... Speed up, speed yeah, up. It does speed, speed up, up and it gets faster. Right, well, well, well that's that been tonight, fantastic. Thank you. The last thing I ask people to do is to just say goodbye to the audience, really. No, goodbye to the audience, really. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. 
or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app that you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. This Friday on Getting Better Acquainted, me and Joe try and find out the answers to the questions we started asking at the end of this episode. So it's a GBA special devoted to finding out the specifics of the heart attack and the heart bypass and how they affected my dad and all of his children, particularly me. It'll feature a couple of true stories that I performed at the Spark, www.sparklondon.com and some conversations between more than two people, groups of people, group dynamics this Friday. Hope you enjoy it. It's coming out Friday. Have a listen.